Um, but we're continuing the sermon series. It's called Organic Disciples, and we're looking at different practices that the Bible says makes us more like Jesus. These practices work together to form us in a certain way so that we can be a distinct people uh, in the world. And so I invite you to get your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 17. Uh, we're going to look at one of my favorite stories. I say that literally every time. But uh, this is my favorite story for this week. Uh, Luke chapter 17. And let me read this uh, with you. And I'm, I'm also going to grab my sermon notes. I think that would be helpful. So. I was tempted to just not go get these, but you'll be glad I did. Uh, Luke chapter 17. Let's read it together. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except for this foreigner? And then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Now, there's several things going on in this story. The first thing that you see is there's a colony of lepers. There's 10 of them. And, and you may know a, a little bit about uh, leprosy in the Gospels. It's a disease that shows up quite frequently. It's a skin disease. It's a bacterial infection. And it, what would happen is when people acquired that, they would have to be secluded in these colonies. And they were taken away from the regular society, and they were put uh, in this marginalized society so that the infection wouldn't spread. And so here's people living in a leper colony, and they have this encounter with Jesus. And the text tells us that, that Jesus does something there that was common for him in his ministry. He healed them. He, he said, go show yourself to the priest and, and receive the, the approval of the priest so that you can rejoin regular society. Uh, the lepers were experiencing something that we're very familiar with, this little thing called quarantine. I think most of us in the room have probably been quarantined at some point over the last uh, two years. And the priest was like the school nurse. Like the school nurse pronounced if you were able to come back to school or not, if you had completed your quarantine uh, or not. And I'm so thankful for the times that I've called the school nurse or Lauren's called the school nurse, and she has said, yes, Luke can come back to school, Paul can come back to school. It was great to get that approval. And so that's what Jesus does. He sends them off to the priest who can, who can say, yes, you've been cleansed, you can rejoin society. But only one comes back to give thanks. Only one comes back to say thank you and to give praise for what Jesus has done. And I was using my imagination this week, and I was thinking, what was going on with the other nine? I mean, what was it that 
consumed them or what was it that distracted them? Why is it that they didn't come back to Jesus to say thank you and to give praise and to worship Jesus for what he had done? I sort of think that the other nine were, were, were living, um, they, they, <laughs> they were living in such a way that they thought life was all about them. I was, um, I was at the store uh, this past week and I passed this young lady, she's probably 13 or 14 years old, and, and she had a shirt on and it was kind of a playful, silly shirt. You know how these shirts can be. And, and it said, it's all about me. It said that on the front of her shirt. It's all about me. And I remember working with young people and I remember talking to a mentor and I was saying, you know, I've noticed something about youth culture, like, like, like these, these kids are, are pretty self-absorbed. They think life is all about them. And, and um, I was talking to my mentor as a youth pastor and said, when, when do they grow out of that? Like, when does that kind of go away? He said, you know, what I've seen in ministry is, is that if we're lucky, they normally grow out of that like around 45, 46, some, something like that. This is not just a youth thing. This is like an us thing. Like we live with this, this idea that life is all about me. And it's kind of playful in a shirt, but it's not so playful uh, with this other shirt I saw because I really think it reflected a, an attitude that is, is prevalent and is uh, not cool. And, and it, I saw this guy that wore this, who had this shirt on and it said, uh, my, I got to look and see what it said. And I'm, so I'm glad I got my notes here. Um, oh yeah, there it is. <laughs> I've tried to block this out of my memory. But he had this shirt on that said, my rights don't end where your feelings begin. What a nice guy. That's a guy you want to be friends with, right? My rights don't end where your feelings begin. That's a much more, uh, you know, that, that's, that's a, a much more heated shirt than you know, the, the young lady wearing a shirt that says it's, it's all about me. He's taking it to another level. Um, but I think it reflects something in our, our culture, something that I think the nine lepers who failed to return to Jesus really embodied. It was about them. They had received what they wanted from Jesus and no longer had need or a desire to be in his presence. They got what they wanted. They received their get out of leper colony free card and no longer needed to be connected to what Jesus was doing. And friends, I think that we can run the risk of thinking about salvation in this way. That salvation is this, this transactional thing that happens. We get forgiveness. We're given this promise of heaven when we die and we can begin to think that life is all about me. But one of the things that we proclaim in worship, one of the things that we've proclaimed today is that, that it's all about God. Like this moment that we have here, you may like the songs. Maybe you like singing in Spanish. Maybe that's your preference. Maybe you like what we've done here today or you like what we did last week or you like what we're going to do next week. But none of that is as important as what happens in this moment when we declare it's all about God. It's not about you. It's not about your preferences. It's not even about what you want. 
It's about what Scripture declares God to be, and, and we exalt that and we lift that up in, in worship. And so the nine are consumed with other things. The nine are living as if life is all about them, but there was one who returned to give worship. What happens when we give worship to God, when we declare, hey, it's all about God? What is happening there? We can just break that word down. It's super easy. It literally means worth-ship. It is a declaration of someone or something's worthiness. When we come to God and worship, we're saying, of all the things and all the people in the world, God is sovereign. God is exalted. There is nothing more worthy than God. This is the declaration that we are making. And the, I, I would say to you today that, that the difference, there was, a, there was something different that happened in the life of the one leper versus those of the, the nine who failed to return. When Jesus said, you were clean, you're cleansed, go and show yourself to the priest, he uses a Greek word there called katharizo. It's from this Greek word that we get our English word cathartic. When you have a cathartic conversation with someone, you have this healing conversation, maybe you get something off of your chest, maybe you're able to work through something, and it's a cathartic exchange between maybe you and a counselor or you and a best friend, or, or, or maybe you've patched up a, a, a rift that you had with, a, with a, a friend, and it's been restored. It was a cathartic experience. And so Jesus pronounces healing, the cleansing of leprosy, to all ten. But the one returns to give two things to Jesus. Doxa is the word Luke uses, from which we get our word doxology. It simply means praise and eucharisto, or thankfulness. It's from this Greek word that we get the English word eucharist, which is what we do when we have the Lord's Supper. It is a meal that reminds us to be thankful for what God has done for us. And so the one leper returns giving eucharisto and giving doxa to Jesus, and that praise and that thankfulness that he returns to Jesus, it results in something that happens. Not only is that leper katharizo, or cleansed, but Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And he uses the word for salvation there, sotza. It's this holistic idea that not only has your body been cleansed, but your soul has been cleansed. Your soul has been restored. Salvation has come to you. And so, friends, may we not make the mistake of thinking this moment is about us. May we come into this place and into this encounter with the Lord and this fellowship of God's people constantly reminded that it's all about God. And the reason why that is so important is because the way we are created, the fact of, of our identity is that you are going to worship something or someone. What it means to be human is that you are going to worship something or someone. It's just the way we were created. Male and female, in his image, 
God puts the man and the woman in the garden, and God comes and walks with the man and the woman in the garden in the cool of the day. They have fellowship with each other. They were created to worship God. And so, because we're created in this way, I want to remind us of something about kind of how we're wired. A lot of times we make the mistake of thinking that, that I think, therefore I am. Remember a guy named Descartes said that about oh, two or three hundred years ago? Basically, he was saying that, that humans are primarily thinking creatures. We're basically brains that, that have a body attached to it. But at, at the core of what it means to be human is to think and to use logic and to use reason. But what Descartes was missing out on is something that a, a guy named Augustine in the fourth century talks to us about, and, and it's really what Scripture proclaims, is that we're not primarily thinking creatures, we are feeling creatures. We have affections and emotions, and we are programmed to worship and to direct those affections or those emotions to something or someone. Now, you don't believe me? Let me, let me explain. Uh, I, think, I think this will help it snap into focus for you. Have you ever watched a romantic comedy in which the man and the woman, they made a list of pros and cons of why they should be together, and the pros outweighed the cons, and they sat down and they logically reasoned together that, you know, we should get married. It just makes sense. Have you ever watched a romantic comedy where that thing happened, where logically people came together, they got married, and everyone lived happily ever after? It would be the worst romantic comedy ever. It would be the worst Hallmark movie ever. Because what makes those stories so compelling is not their reason, or not, it's not logic. What makes them so compelling is that two people who shouldn't be together. There's all these reasons why they shouldn't get together. Neither one of them have parents that approve of the arrangement, but these people decide they're going to get married anyway. You know why? Because she's in love with the boy. And even if she has to run away, I'm going to marry that boy someday. Right? She's in love with the boy. It doesn't make sense. Did I just say I'm going to marry that boy someday? Yes, I did. <laughs> but we're not thinking creatures. We're feeling creatures. And we love the movies where people who, they, they shouldn't be together. There's all these reasons why they shouldn't. But they love each other. They love each other. And they defy the odds and they get married anyway. You see, that is a compelling story because that's the way we're wired you're going to worship something or someone. And so this moment of worship, it happens so that our loves might be correctly aimed toward one who is worthy. You see, worship correctly aims our loves. God is the only one worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your worship because he is perfect. There is no mistake with God. He's absolutely worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your worship because he loves you like no one else will love you. He's worthy of your worship because he is sovereign. He's perfect in his ways. He's perfect in his love. He's perfect in his power. 
And he is, is calling you into a life and into a kingdom that rightly aims your loves and your affections. And actually, sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes the world doesn't understand why Christians are so in love with God. But we come together in worship, and it rightly aims our loves. And some of the challenges that I have as a, as a pastor, as your pastor, who is, is trying to, to lead a community of people that rightly aims our loves and affections, is I have competition. Did you know that? There are other people who are trying to aim your loves and your affections toward lots of different things. Because marketers know we're not thinking people, we're feeling people. Organizations know we're not thinking people, we're feeling people. And so how do we rightly aim the loves and the affections of people towards our product or towards our ideology or towards whatever it is? And I'm going to step on some toes here. In fact, I'm stepping on my own toes here. But I've got competition in this quest to aim our loves towards that which is worthy of our worship. And some of that competition happens on Sunday afternoons. It's going to happen today at 2 o'clock. And then later at 5.30. There's going to be a worship gathering St. <laughs> Patrick is going to take the field. Hopefully he'll be successful. I know we don't have any Bengal fans in here. Maybe, I don't know. No, but like, like I think about the pageantry that's connected to something like a football game. Yesterday or last week, I watched the most amazing football game I've ever seen, the Chiefs versus the Bills. I watched it from start to finish. And so I watched the beginning of the game, and what an amazing job of presenting the, the flag and the servicemen and women who were on the field. And, and so, so all of this, this choreographed presentation of, of the colors, it was there on the field, and the national anthem was sung. And as the, you know, and the rockets red glare and the fireworks go off, and then at the end, and the home of the brave, and then the the uh, stealth bomber flies across Arrowhead Stadium. It was, it was an incredible display of pageantry, and it was evoking certain emotions, was it not? So I'm watching all of this on TV, and I get on Facebook, and my friend Tony is there. <laughs> and, and, and I've heard from Tony that it's, you know, I, I would be at church, but man, you know, it's just, uh, man, it's too cold. Too cold. Too cold to get out. I didn't know this, but like apparently Arrowhead Stadium has like heaters everywhere. And like when you go, apparently you're not cold because it's too cold for those people to go to church. But it's just right in Arrowhead Stadium. So, but Tony was there. He had great seats. And so he goes Facebook Live while the national anthem's being played. And the home of the brave, and the bomber flies across Arrowhead Stadium. And his buddy that's with him, man, you can hear him off camera. He's like, oh, dude, I just got chills. It's like, yeah, man, me too. Man, I just got chills. And, 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 I, and I, I want us to think about 
where that pageantry is aiming our loves and affections. I mean, what are the things in our world that, man, I got chills. That, I, I got chills when that happened. There's something awe-inspiring. My mind was directed to the sky. I was moving my loves and my affections upward. And this instrument of war flies across the stadium, capable of untold destruction. Flies across the stadium. Man, I got chills. You see the competition that we're up against? You see the different ways that your affections are aimed and loved? Every day it happens, not just at football games, but at the mall, at work. It's a competition to aim our loves and affections toward that which our world says has value, that which our world says is, is worthy. And, and the story of God tells the rise and fall of many empires. Pharaoh rose and he fell. Babylon rose and fell comes after Babylon. Greece rose and fell. Rome, it rose and it fell. Hmm. And the Ottoman Empire, it rose and it's fallen. And the British Empire, it rose and it has fallen. And there are other empires today, and they have amazing aircraft, and they fly over stadiums all the time. And why would we think that empire doesn't have a life cycle? The Soviet empire rose and it fell, and today it's trying to rise again. And so empires rise and fall. But these empires that rise and fall, are they worthy of your worship? Are they worthy? Are they perfect? Do they embody unconditional love? You see, what worship does is it takes us out of these empires and it aims our loves and affections toward God. And what is the picture of God that we see? We get to the end of our story. I want to fast forward to the book of Revelation. There's John. He's on the Isle of Patmos. All kinds of crazy things are happening. Christians are being killed. Christians are being persecuted. The Roman Empire is, is doing all kinds of terrible things to Christians. John is exiled on, on, on Patmos. And, and you would think that as John has this vision of heaven, that you would, would look in heaven and you would see like red lights going off and sirens going off. And, and you would think heaven would really be panicking right now. Look at all these Christians who are being persecuted. This is awful. But what does John see? John sees a heavenly throne room. And in this heavenly throne room, it's not code red. Christians are being persecuted. What's happening? There's a worship service. It's a declaration that God is sovereign and God is in control. And when the world seems to be falling apart, heaven is directing us to worship to worship. I was driving around this week. I need to stop looking at t-shirts and I need to stop looking at bumper stickers. 
what you say on your t-shirt and what you put on the bumper of your car, it just drives me crazy sometimes. And, and uh, I, I philosophize everywhere I go and theologize everywhere I go, it seems like. But I'm driving around town and somebody in front of me has a bumper sticker and it says, in God we trust. Okay, it's a good thing to say. I hope it's true. There's no one else you need to trust in. Trust in God. Good, it's true. Right next to it. I don't even know what this bumper sticker means. But, but seeing it right next to this declaration of trust in God, just it kind of messed with me a little bit. It said, lions, not sheep. Hmm. I don't even I really know what it means. This person says, I'm trusting in God. Lions, not sheep. Hmm. Sounds biblical. What did John see? So Revelation tells us that he heard a lion. He heard that, that God had, had conquered. He heard this lion roar. The lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. And so he hears this lion and he looks in the vision and he's expecting to see this lion of Judah. But what does he see? He sees a lamb that was slain. John's affections and his loves were rightly aimed towards heaven. And in rightly aiming his affections and his loves toward heaven, he sees not instruments of war and destruction. He sees a lamb that was slaughtered. A lamb that lays down power. A lamb that conquers in a way that no one else conquers. By giving his life as a atoning sacrifice for the world and entrusting his life to the will of the Father who, because of his obedience, is raised to new life. This is the story of the people of God. This is how we live. And so in worship, our loves and our affections are aimed towards that ideal. And so we worship. But church, do you understand the competition for your love and for your affection? It happens every single day. Every single day there is a competition for your love and your affection, and it's inviting you into a different story. The worship surface is happening. And so Revelation chapter 5, after John sees the lion and the lamb, the worship service continues. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Verse 13, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and unto thee, Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. So, church, worship, it forms us to be this unique people that reflect the love of God to the world. 
And when it feels like the world is spinning helplessly out of control, and maybe you're sitting here saying, who's in charge? Man, who's in charge of what Russia's doing? Who's in charge of what's going on over here in the world? Who's in charge? Before you press red alert and before you begin to panic and put your love and your affection in lots of different places, remember, nobody's worried about who's in charge in heaven. They've got a worship service going. And they're ascribing praise and glory and honor to the Lamb because He's worthy. He's worthy. And this way of the Lamb is how we live. It's how we live. 